Good morning. You guys doing well? Good to have you with us. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to 1 Peter chapter 1. We'll be looking at verses 3 through 9. This is our CrossFit teaching series, Finding Wholeness in a Broken World. And the weekend's uh, title is uh, Fiery Trials. Number one, we're going to look at this uh, text for a couple weeks. As we said last week, we kicked off this teaching series uh, study through the book of 1 Peter, or the letter of 1 Peter. And the thesis statement for this book is really this, life is a fiery furnace that can either burn you to a crisp or refine you as pure as gold. That's uh, the thesis statement, thus the uh, subtitle, Finding Wholeness in a Broken World. Peter's writing to a group of people who are being dispersed throughout the world because of heavy persecution. They're experiencing problems uh, about 10 times worse than what we will probably ever experience. And so he's going to give them the resources so that they can find wholeness. We're using the word wholeness synonymously with holiness, holiness, wholeness in this broken world. In fact, as we said last weekend, that holiness or wholeness and hardship are inextricably connected. How's that? Well, you need wholeness to get through hardship, but hardship has a way of developing wholeness within us. And that's what First Peter is all about. Let me begin by asking you a couple questions. You can answer these out loud if you'd like, and then I'm going to uh, respond with each of these questions with uh, some quotes. As modern American people, are we more or less prepared for suffering than our ancestors? What do you guys think? Okay, how many would say that we are less uh, capable of responding to our negative circumstances? Okay, show of hands, show of hands. How many would say that we are more capable of working through our, uh, okay, nobody here, nobody in this uh, service. There was one in the last service, and uh, so I set them straight. And uh, just wanted to see if I needed to set anybody straight here this morning. But listen to this quote. This is actually from uh, Timothy Keller's book, Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering, which I think is one of the, the best books out there currently. I've read a number of books, and I think it's really a great book worth reading. But this is uh, what he says in his book in response to that question. Life for our ancestors was filled with far more suffering than ours is, and yet we have innumerable diaries, journals, and historical documents that reveal how they took that hardship and grief in far better stride than do we. One scholar of ancient Northern European history observed how unnerving it is for modern readers to see how much more unafraid people 1,500 years ago were in the face of loss, violence, suffering, and death. So we are less prepared Another question for you, and that is, and this is pretty obvious, but I need to ask this question. As Christians, should we be more prepared or less prepared than non-Christians? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely more, more. Listen to what he says, Timothy Keller, walking with God through pain and suffering. It is almost impossible to overestimate the importance of the Christian approach to suffering for its success in the Roman Empire and for its impact on human thinking. So first century Christians and what they went through, that's why we're reading this letter written from Peter to a group of people that are going through difficult circumstances. He goes on, he says, early Christian speakers and writers not only argued vigorously that Christianity's teaching made more sense of suffering, they insisted 
that the actual lives of Christians proved it. Christians used suffering to argue for the superiority of their creed because they suffered and died better than pagans. Pretty interesting. Now, why would I start a message like that? Kind of start where we are so we can kind of look at our lives. This is what I hope through uh, the teaching here this weekend and the next weekend as we deal with fiery trials, but really throughout this whole teaching series, Finding Wholeness in a Broken World. How many are familiar with the story of the three Hebrew dudes, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, show of hands? Uh, in the Old Testament, Daniel chapter 3, pretty phenomenal story. I love this story. These guys, uh, Israel was conquered, a lot of their leading officials were drug off as exiles into Babylon. And so these guys were uh, exiles in Babylon, and, and they were required to bow down, according to King Nebuchadnezzar. He had built this gold uh, image. It was about 30, uh, about 10, about probably uh, about 10 stories high or so. I mean, it's just, this is a gigantic image. And anytime they hear the music, they're supposed to hit the deck. They're supposed to bow down. And, and I, love, I love the response of these guys because I think that they teach us something about suffering and as we face suffering, and this is what I hope that, that God develops within us. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, because he's insisting that they bow down, and they said, no, we're not going to do that. But notice how they respond. Oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. <laughs> Sounds pretty defiant to me. <laughs> I mean, it's almost like, hey, we, we really, really only report to one king. You're kind of a small king compared to the king, the real king that we report to. So we really don't even have to respond to you if we don't want to. Oh, and by the way, and then they go on and says, if this be so, you're going to throw us in a fiery furnace. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, so you're tracking with what they're saying? He can, he can deliver us, he will deliver us. Oh, but even if he doesn't, even if he doesn't, uh, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. I love that. Oh my goodness, I want to know the God that they know. I mean, do you understand what's going on here? They have this amazing blend of, of they're confident, he can, he will, but also humility. But if he doesn't, our life is surrendered to him. I mean, do you see that? I mean, their confidence is in, is in God and not in their limited understanding of what they think he'll do. There's a, there's a major difference between the two. We're not so arrogant. What they're saying is that we're not so arrogant to believe that we know what he's up to. These guys are fireproof. I mean, it's, a, it's amazing faith. This is major league faith. We don't defy you because we think we're going to live. We defy you because live or die. He is our great and good God whom we adore. We are overtaken by who he is and living for him and his glory is first and foremost and we've never been satisfied. And either way, he can save us from the fire, but he could also save us through the fire. We will wake up in his arms 
and nothing could be better. So the, you can't beat people like this. And this, is, this is a fireproof faith. We love and serve God for himself and not for what we get out of him. You understand how critical that is? And that's my hope for you and I. As we face struggles and issues, yes, we will ask boldly. He invites us to do that. We're going to surrender completely to the results of what he wants to bring into our lives because we can trust his loving, wise control of our lives. See, and I hear people, you know, say this all the time. Ah, oh, yeah, I tried the Christian thing, and I didn't really kind of, it didn't really work out for me. What do you mean it didn't work out? Well, I really didn't get what I thought I, I, thought I could have gotten or should have gotten. Or hey, listen, the could or the should of what you thought that you should have had, that's what you were really serving. You weren't really serving God. He was a means to an end, and whatever that end is was more important to you than the God in whom you had in your life, and you had no clue who was in your life. Oh my goodness, these guys have this faith and they have an understanding of God that is so big and it so transcends the circumstances, it doesn't matter. They know that he's all powerful and they're, they've pushed all their chips in. They're like, yep, we're going with him. And however this might go down, we're trusting him because, because his steadfast love is better than all that life can give or death could ever take away. That's, a, that's, that's my prayer for you. That's my prayer for, for me. That when we go through the fiery trials, that we suffer, we suffer well. We put on display that kind of, that kind of faith. That people would look at us and go, wow, that's a strong argument. I want to know the God that you know. You guys tracking with me? That's big stuff. That's big stuff right there. And knowing God is better than all that life can give or death can take away. They knew God would deliver them from death or through death. It didn't matter. Our lives are in his hands. And so that's where we're headed. And uh, we'll come back to that story later on in our study. But we're going to look this morning at really, so Christians suffer well because. So what does that look like? How can we have this kind of fireproof faith? And there's things that you need to think, feel, and do as a response. Our text is going to give that to us this morning. Would you bow your heads with me? Let's pray. And then we're going to dive into our text. God, we are delighted to be here today, and uh, already this morning we have had opportunity to connect with you and to experience you and to know you. That, that is our greatest joy. We love you. And God, we thank you that you are close to the brokenhearted and save those who are crushed in spirit. And in a culture that chooses comfort over character, happiness, over holiness, Help us to not deny or avoid or even despair in our fiery trials, but to face them with the confidence to ask boldly and the humility to surrender completely to your will, knowing that in your love you, you want what is best for us, and in your wisdom you know what is best for us, and in your power you will do it. And so, God, we trust you in all the circumstances of our lives. Teach us what we need to think, feel, and do in response to our fiery trials so that we can put on display that you are more satisfying than all that life can give or death can take away. We pray these things in Jesus' name and everyone said, amen. So let's take a look at this text. Let me read through it. We finished our study off last weekend at verse three. Let's pick it up there at verse three. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, exclamation mark. That's doxology. 
He just talked about the gospel, the triune God in our salvation. And then he's going to kind of spell it out. He's going to give us a list of items. And we're going to spend next week kind of going over this list a little bit more. But he says, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice... So in what? What he just said, this, this list of, of doctrine, this list of, of its theology, the study of God and who God is and what he's, what he's doing in our lives. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Now here's the key verse of this whole letter, so that the tested genuineness of your faith so fiery trials are going to test the genuineness of your faith, what you're actually putting your faith in. Is it really God or is it what you get from God? So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, I've been, I've been reflecting on all of these words and, and meditating on them and actually memorizing them. Oh, my goodness, there is such, such richness here. This is unbelievably savory stuff to, to nourish us spiritually. And now we move to a, to a from savory to uh, something that's very sweet, this next verse is really a sweet verse. He says, though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled, filled with glory. So I, you can't even, so this is second generation Christians. Peter being a first generation, he was there, saw the resurrected Lord and Savior. So these are people that have, that have put their faith in Jesus, are beginning to understand all that, who he is and what he's done for them. And they can't help but love him back because we love him because he first loved us. And when you begin to understand how much he loves you, it, it overtakes you. And so they're loving him back. And so in this, in this relationship with him, they're experiencing unspeakable joy. They can't even put it into words. And it's a glory. Glory means weight, significance, importance. It matters. This matters more than all the, the pain and the suffering in our lives. It just, it, it overwhelms it is really what he's saying here. And then he says, obtaining, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. This is the word of the Lord to us this morning. And so, phenomenal text. So let's talk about this. So Christians suffer well because of, first of all, what we think. Did you notice in verse six, he says, in this you rejoice. And I already talked about that. He goes to this whole list. We'll talk about that list next week, but in this you rejoice. So what is he talking about here? This is what he's talking about. This is what you need to have in your life as you face the difficulties of life. You need to have a biblical worldview. That's your fill in the blank. Biblical worldview. What is a biblical worldview? It is a belief system, a way of thinking about how the world works consistent with the Bible. That would be a biblical worldview. Now, if I sat down with you over coffee, we're hanging out at Starbucks and... Uh, and I, I could find out what your worldview is, whether it's actually biblical or not, by just asking you three questions. Everybody has a worldview. Everybody has a way of filtering life, navigating life based on this understanding of, of three questions. Purpose, what is the purpose of life? What's the problem? Why is life the way it is? Why is it so jacked up? Why do we live in such a broken world? And then what's ultimately the solution to that problem? 
just by asking you those three questions. Um, I came across a book a number of years ago, and I found it really helpful, and it's uh, by George Barner Research Group. They do a lot of research on really the condition of uh, American Christianity, and they say, we're not doing so well. We haven't been doing very well over the last uh, decade or so. And in this book, it's called Think Like Jesus, and he talks about this idea of a biblical worldview. And in fact, uh, let me uh, read to you a little bit at the front end here. He says, everyone has a worldview. Relatively few have a a coherent worldview or are able to articulate it clearly. So everybody has one, but most can't even articulate their worldview. Most people don't consider their worldview to be a central defining element of their, of their life, although it is. People spend surprisingly little time intentionally considering and developing their worldviews. More often than not, their worldview development process is one of unconscious evolution and acceptance. They allow it to evolve and sum it up this way. Whatever. That's the, that's the society we live in. And by the way, you're developing your worldview by, by coming in here. Hopefully you are. The, the, the movies you watch, the magazines you read, music you listen to, that's all a shaping of our worldview, whatever that worldview might be. And uh, he goes on, he says, Americans ra- rarely interact with each other on a substantive level regarding matters and issues that relate to worldview development and clarification. When they do so, they often do not know how to process the interaction or how to progress from their existing position. So even when we're interacting, we don't, we oftentimes, we don't even know really what we're, what kind of a worldview we're functioning with or when we respond to the issues of life. Now, he goes on and says, survey after survey has shown that Americans include, uh, including a, a huge majority of born-again Christians and evangelical Christians lack a biblical worldview. Worst of all, he said, I realized that since I became a believer uh, some two decades ago, nobody had ever taught me how to develop a, a scripture-based worldview to guide every facet of of my life. That's what we do week in and week out here. That's why we encourage you to get into Bible small groups where you begin to work through the growing notes and we're wanting to help you with your biblical worldview. By the way, in answering those three questions, what would you say that the biblical, or not the biblical worldview, but the worldview is of most Americans as it relates to the purpose of life? Oh, you don't need to answer that. I'll answer it for you, okay? Here it is. It's this is that the purpose of life is my personal liberty and happiness. Would you guys agree with that? Yeah, so don't interfere with that. And, uh, and they would say that the problem is oppression. You know, when people kind of you know, oppress us in some way, and of course the solution is a better society. So we need a society where we can all do our own thing, as long as it doesn't inhibit each other from doing our own thing. That couldn't be further from what the Bible says is uh, the ultimate purpose of life. What is the ultimate purpose in life as it relates to uh, what the Bible says? Anybody? You want to yell out to me? It's about glorifying God. It ain't about you. Because if you ask most people, they say, well, why did you make that decision? Because I want to be happy. What? I just want my kids to be happy. What? That's, that's a secular worldview. Happiness, liberty. No, it's the glory of God. 
You were created by God for God to give glory to God. You'll never, you'll never be more satisfied than when you live for his glory. Not your glory. You want to know why this place is a mess that it is? It's because we're all living for our own glory. We're not living for his glory. And uh, what's, the, uh, what's the problem? The problem is that we, we want to live for our own glory. And that spiritual alienation that that creates creates psychological alienation, therefore creating more social alienation in our relationships. Of course, the solution for us is that Jesus came to this earth, lived the life we should have lived, died the death we should have died. By his grace, he redeems us. He restores us back into a right relationship with God. Nothing you do, it's what he's done. It's a gift. And so you can see those, those opposing ideas. Here's the next point in your notes. I gave you a lot of verses. You can study those on your own. We're not gonna take time to look at all the cross-references. Here's the next point as it relates to our thinking. So Christians suffer well because of what we think, this biblical worldview. It is your worldview about an event that determines how you feel and behave in response to that event. So let me walk you through this. You need to understand this. Everybody look up here. Listen to me. It's not what happens to you. It's what happens in you. Your response to what happens to you that matters most, that determines whether you will melt or be molded in the fiery furnaces of life. It's not what happens to you. It's what's happening in you. It's your worldview. It's what you're saying to yourself about the events of life that determine how you feel and how you respond. Listen to me. You gotta get that. That's why it's so critical that you have a biblical worldview because that's what helps you to navigate the issues of life. Two people can go through identical fiery trials. This is not a cliche. And one becomes bitter and the other becomes better. That's true. That's true. And, uh, and it really comes down to, you know, what kind of a, of, of a world view that you have. And if it's anchored in the word of God rather than in the world, you're not going to become bitter. You're going to become better. So let me level with you. How about you? I'm not denying the fact you can't go very far in life without taking some major hits. I know many of you have. You're going to take hits in this world. Let me ask you this. Is it making you bitter? Are you hostage to that hostility deep in your heart? Or is it making you better? Better in that the purpose of life is to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and to love your neighbor as yourself. You see, that's, so you can go through really difficult times and, and your heart can actually, I've seen it in my own life, I've seen it in many other lives, is that your heart can actually grow bigger for God and bigger for others. Or the bondage of bitterness because look what life has handed me. And where's God in all of this? And so, I mean, you could, as you kind of work through this, 
I've heard another uh, quote a number of years ago, and I've always used, life is 10% what happens to me and 90% how I respond. Now, okay, I've got to inject a little bit of, uh, you know, a little bit of a joke here. Uh, you know, uh, it's, this, is a, this is classic, uh, classic DB uh, humor. It's been a while since I've used this illustration, so please hang in there with me just for a moment. So I think it's a great illustration, personally. But uh, I'll probably offend a few folks with this, but so it's okay. So let's talk about, our, you know, so it's our circumstances. So that's, that's the reason there's a major difference between, I'm sorry, dogs and cats. Okay? And this is the major difference between dogs and cats. So a dog looks at his circumstances and says, so he's looking at his circumstances, he's got a, he's got a worldview. He's looking at his circumstances, he says, you feed me, you pet me, you shelter me. You must be God. A cat looks at his circumstances and says, you feed me, you pet me, you shelter me. I must be God. That's why cats will not be in heaven. Okay, show of hands, how many have cats? How many, how many love cats? Okay. Okay, you better start praying for your cat right now. They have their own heaven. They have their own heaven. Cat heaven. Okay, there you go. Yeah, you, you see, here, now here's the, here's the difference. Here's the difference. And that was just, that's all in fun. Only a good cat is a dead cat. But, uh, I'm kidding. No, please forgive me. I mean it, really, from the bottom of my heart. We do have some stray cats in the neighborhood, and they do help us with the gophers, so I haven't had many gophers, so hey, praise God for those cats. Those dirty cats. But, uh, but let me ask you this. Which one most represents you? I'm God. I didn't get what I, I should have gotten. I deserve better than this. So you're like shaking your fist at God, and I see a lot of people do that. They shake their fist at God. You're more like a cat. You think it's about you. You're living by a secular worldview. Life revolves around you. Don't do that. That's destructive. I mean, you want that perspective that says, oh God, it is all about you. It's living for your glory and I can find and experience your glory and my deepest satisfaction in the worst of times or even in the best of times. Help me to do that. Work on my life. And uh, so that's, that's, uh, that's important. So you got a biblical worldview. It is your worldview about an event that determines how you feel and behave in response to that event. You can actually become, you can actually become bitter or better. Oh, by the way, let me just, I, I need to inject this too, is that I actually thought I was becoming better and I had people that asked me questions. I'm looking at a, at a couple that, that haven't been here for a while. I remember him asking me this uh, and uh, Mr. Blackburn, you asked me this question one time, and it was, it was one of, it, you hit, you were right on. And I was talking about sharing, I was sharing a little bit about what somebody had done to me in the past. I said, but I'm over it. He goes, it doesn't sound like it. <laughs> and you were spot on. And that made me like, what? Yes, I am over it. Get off my back. <laughs> I mean, that was kind of my response. And, um, and I was thankful for that. I was thankful uh, 
that he asked that question. I'm thankful that I've got people that are close enough to me in my life in both small groups and on staff that will ask me those hard questions because I was in denial. I thought, oh yeah, I'm becoming better. No, you're not. You're bitter. It's poisoning you. And by the way, it's poisoning all the rest of us. And we love you and that's why we're, speaking, we're, we're sharing that with you. And so that's, that's part of that. Here's the next point on your notes. This is C.S. Lewis quote. Um, for the wise men of old, the cardinal problem had been how to conform the soul to reality and the solution had been knowledge, self-discipline, and virtue. So how can we, how can God use this to develop us in our lives, this difficulty? But for modern people, the problem is how to subdue reality to the wishes of men and the solution is a technique. See, if you read most of the magazines and the books that are out there nowadays, the self-help, and this has infiltrated the church family, that what they will do is they'll teach you a technique. Well, you need to go for a long walk. You need to buy, buy a pet dog, not a cat, because buy a pet dog, I'm kidding. But, uh, so that'll help calm you down. And so they start teaching you techniques rather than ask you, well, what's your purpose in life? They don't get down to the root issues of what is it that drives our lives, why do we exist, what's going on, what is the problem with that, and how do we resolve it? You're all dealing with symptoms and the symptoms of those things, and that's often what we do. So you see the difference, what he's making is that it's not so much about, and we're constantly asking for circumstance enhancement, and the Bible's saying, wait, 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 I'm, I'm, I want this trial, I want this fiery trial to develop you and to increase your intimacy with me and your maturity that you will find more satisfaction unlike you've ever experienced before. But you've got to let me work in your life through this fiery trial. But when we're trying to pray ourselves out of fiery trials... Circumstance enhancement as opposed to character development and God, I want to know you in the midst of this. It's a major difference. The fact that we pray so much more instinctively, consistently and fervently for money and health and reputation and approval and social status than we do for the work of God's Holy Spirit to fortify our faith and to strengthen our character so that we can live a life that's more God-glorifying. It really shows us it shows us that our hearts, what our hearts are really after and what we're trusting in more than anything. Just, just our prayers and just what we ask for in our prayers. And uh, that's the point of, of really C.S. Lewis. And so we've got to start thinking differently. We're going to add to that next week and talk about that a little bit more. Here's the next thing. So what should we be feeling? So Christians suffer, suffer well because of what we think. In this you rejoice and then what should we feel? Notice this. He says, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved. Did you notice that? Both rejoicing and grieving are happening simultaneously. It's not that he says, oh, now that you're not grieving anymore, now you can rejoice. He's not saying that. It's, this is simultaneously. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved. It's not a contradiction, by the way. It's a It's a paradox. What I love about Christianity, it's not, it, it, it isn't a denial of reality, but it's an embracing of God in, in the midst of reality. And so, so what he's saying here, and I'll, I'll prove this in a moment with some other verses, is that you need, that in the midst of grieving, there's a joy that undergirds you, that supports you, that gets you through that, that that's possible. It's, it's, uh, it almost doesn't make sense, but, and yet that's what... Uh, that's uh, what he's talking about here. So, so think about this. So if you're always rejoicing, woo -hoo -hoo, chipper, happy, ha-ha, 
Got to keep the joy of the Lord. Woohoo! But you're never grieving. You're in denial of the reality of suffering. That's messed up. In fact, I came from a church background where there were people tended to do that. Hey, don't be sad. You're losing the victory. Come on, brother. We got to keep the victory. As if the victory is always being happy and chipper and woohoo. Yeah, but my, you know, my friend just died. Whoa, okay, don't lose the victory. Come on, we can be happy. That's messed up, okay? That's a little psychotic. That's weird. That's cultic. I mean, in a major way. So he's, so rejoicing minus grief is denial of the reality of suffering. But grief, if all you're doing is grieving all the time minus rejoicing, you're in denial of the reality of God in the midst of your, your problems, your difficulties. If you don't grieve, God has done such a wonderful job at wiring us, and if you don't grieve, it's like a shock absorber. You know, if you don't have shock absorbers in your car, your car's gonna rattle to pieces. And so this grief is, a, is kind of a shock absorber of dealing with the issues of life and keeping life from, from shaking you up too badly. And, and if, you don't, if you don't let it out, if you don't grieve it, it is still in there somewhere. And it's possible to have gone through great loss years ago and to have not grieved it properly and still be carrying that around with you. And it's extremely unhealthy and it will poison you. It'll come out in a lot of different ways in your life. If the Son of God, Jesus, needed a good cry, we see that in the 11th chapter of John when it says Jesus wept. So if the Son of God needed a good cry, then so do you and I. He wept, and yet he knew that he was going to be raising Lazarus from the, from the dead, and yet there was, there was weeping, there was grief. Beware of the weird idea that weeping and mourning is somehow doubting God or a sign of weakness or it's not manly. It is wrong to have that idea and to not give people the freedom and the room to be able to, to express that grief. And what it keeps them, it keeps them kind of bondage in this bitterness or hostage to the hostility that's going on deep inside of them. And to be quite frankly, you know, to be quite frank with you as it relates to, to suffering is that there, there are no nice, simple answers to the complex issues of evil and suffering. Some things are unresolved, no amount of explanations or intellectualizing or spiritualizing helps. And um, some things are painful, random, evil, and brutal, and they make no sense, and right now we can't resolve them we have to leave them in God's hands, and that's what grief is about. God, I give this to you. That's what these guys were doing, in essence. We're going to face a fiery furnace. He can, he will. If he doesn't, it's in his hands. It's yours, God. We just trust you. You're a big God. You're a great God. We love you. We're overtaken by you. It's a great way to live. That's a great place to live. And um, so beware of the paralysis of analysis, always trying to come up with a reason. Well, I can't figure out why this would happen to me. Man, you're going to be paralyzed. Just you've got to keep going. You've got to keep your eyes on him. You've got to give it over to him and understand that he's got a bigger plan and a purpose that even goes beyond our ability to fully comprehend. And, I mean, you can read the book of, there's a book in the Bible, it's called Lamentations. Lamenting, grieving. And then the, most of the book of Psalms is all about grieving. You guys know I have no problem up front crying from time to time. I do that. 
And uh, I think that's healthy. I think it's really healthy to have a good cry from time to time. And, uh, and there's that good balance. And uh, I mean, you even got Psalms. They've got two Psalms that they just, you know, most of the Psalms that kind of end good, but there's a couple Psalms that don't even end good. Psalm 88, he says, darkness is my closest friend. Where are you, God? You're nowhere to be found. And right now, I just, I'm, I'm, it's dark. Psalm 39 is, is another psalm that's like that. You can't get any lower than that, and yet the Bible puts that in there. God put that in there for us to say, hey, there are times in your life that's where you're going to be. And it's okay. It's okay. It's part of the process as I work in your life. And uh, so let me give you some, let me give you some uh, Bible for that. You're probably saying, are you sure that we're supposed to be sorrowful and rejoicing at the same time? That sounds a little schizophrenic to me. No, 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 that's very biblical. It's very biblical. 2 Corinthians 6.10. I've got, got them on your notes there. Sorrowful yet always rejoicing. That's what Paul says. 1 Thessalonians 4.13 says that we grieve, like we, we grieve, but we don't grieve like the world grieves. We grieve because we have hope. And I love Job 1.20 through 23. I, I shared this a few weeks ago when I was talking about when we talked about suffering and I was sharing a little bit of, of my, my father's condition and what he's going through and watching my mom struggle with that and, and, uh, and as I've continued to grieve and yet there's something, there's something in the midst of this grief that we as a family are walking through. We have never felt uh, God's presence and his power uh, more significantly in our lives. But, but Job 1.20-23, if I were to come in here on a Sunday morning and I tore my shirt, I came up here and tore my shirt and shaved my head, don't need to do that, my head's kind of already shaved. That's what Job did. And then he threw himself on the ground. You'd think, he's lost the victory. No, Job did that. In fact, it says that then Job arose, tore his robe, shaved his head, fell on the ground, and worshiped. You get that combination of there's this grief, and yet there's this, I'm clinging to you, God. I, there's a joy in you. In fact, he says, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And then the next verse, it says, in all of this, Job did not sin and charge God with wrong. So here you got this combination of grief, and yet this faith, deep faith in God. In fact, I don't know if I've got this on your notes, but write this down. It's actually Job 6.10. This is a sweet, sweet verse. This is Job. He says, but it is still my consolation. Now, keep in mind what he went through, Job. And I rejoice in unsparing pain. You know what unsparing pain is? It's like, that's pretty relentless. I rejoice in this pain that is unsparing that I have not denied the words of the Holy One, that I have him and I have his word and, I, and that's my confidence in the midst of this. So let me give you some fill in the blanks as it relates to this, what we should be feeling. So sorrowful yet always rejoicing is normal, healthy Christianity. Christians should be both sadder and happier because of the gospel. We did a 10-mile hike. I'm getting ready. My wife and I are getting ready for the, we're hiking down to have a soup pie with our epic team here and uh, looking forward to it and it's gonna be a lot of fun but we were out hiking, talked with a couple of uh, firefighters One's retired, the other one's still on the job, and they were talking to me about a, a, a guy that I knew on the job who just died of cancer. And on his deathbed, he was asked if he wanted to give his life to Jesus. And he responded by saying, don't give me that religious crap, basically. And he died. 
And they told me that, and it broke my heart. And it breaks my heart when I see people, when I see people reject the one that would rather die for them than to live all eternity without them, and yet they would reject him and face a Christless eternity, eternally separated from God. Oh, my goodness. So there's things in this world that should break our hearts, and yet we should be the happiest people in this world because of the hope that we have. In fact, being completely accepted and totally loved by God gives you this, this emotional wealth to be secure enough to admit sin, to say, hey, you know what, my identity's in Christ, and so, yeah, I'm, I'm, I messed up there. I'm so sorry. Please forgive me, and you can do that. But also, this uh, being completely accepted and totally loved by God gives you really this sense of hope hopeful enough to admit how bad things are in our life. You don't need to deny that because you know that he's greater than anything you face. People ask me all the time how my dad's doing. He's not doing good. He's not doing good, and it's hard watching him die little by little. It's, it's a kind of an ambiguous loss. He's, he's not completely there and struggling and through the dementia and all of that, and, and it's not... It's, it's not easy, and yet I, I have a sense of God's presence and his hope, and he, and he's, he's causing us, there's the next point, grief causes you to dig deeper into your joy that overwhelms your grief. I'm, I'm finding that in my own life. Joy doesn't eradicate grief, it sweetens it. And I've got, I've got a couple great examples there for you. Second uh, Corinthians chapter 1 with Paul, and then the 12th chapter where he's dealing with a thorn in the flesh. I mean, he actually says, I rejoice in my weakness because when I'm weak, I'm strong. Isn't that crazy? So this is... This is a joy not after the sorrow, but in the sorrow. The opposite of joy is not uh, sadness. The opposite of joy or the, uh, the opposite of joy would be hopelessness. And so joy gives us this buoyancy. Life can push you down, but it can't keep you down, and you come back up because of the pleasures you find in the eternal privileges we have in the person and work of Jesus Christ. I'll be quite frankly, I don't understand how in the world people do it without Jesus. And without that hope, without that biblical worldview. And guess what? They don't. They medicate, they deny, they just do whatever they can to cope. By the way, I don't know if you noticed, but a lot of the, the crazy shootings and a lot of the things that we've seen happen over the last few years, have you noticed how a lot of the, you know, the, po the political officials hijack Christian terms and things to try to bring hope to the families? Because they know, they know. They know that that's where ultimate hope can only be found. Any other worldview is going to collapse under the pressure. This is a worldview that can, can withstand, withstand the, the fiery trials of our lives. Here's the next point on your notes. An indomitable joy in suffering and sorrow reveals that Christ is more satisfying than anything. He's more satisfying than all that life can give or death can take away. And I gave you a couple examples. Acts 5 these guys are being persecuted. They're beaten, and they tell them to no longer talk about Jesus. They said, we can't help but talk about him. We're going to keep talking about him. doesn't matter if we get a beating again. And they rejoiced in the fact that they could suffer for his namesake. And then in the 16th chapter, you guys remember the story of Paul and Silas? They get beat with rods. And at midnight, what are they doing as they're, they're chained to the walls? They're singing, celebrating. And talk about a 
jailhouse rock. That was no pun intended. But, uh, but I mean, it, it rocks the jailhouse. And there's those that come to faith as a result of, of their, their indomitable joy, even in the midst of, of suffering. So that takes us to what we should do. So Christians suffer well because of what we think, what we feel, and what we do. Verse 8, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible glorious joy. That's the NIV, how it puts it. So a biblical worldview, doctrinal truths must, must make the journey from our head to our heart through spiritual disciplines. That's why you're here, hopefully. That's why you get together with, uh, in, in a small group, while you study your Bible. We're going to talk more about the specifics of this, these doctrinal truths next week of what we need to have in our lives for this appropriate worldview. It's not what happens to you, it's what happens in you, and so you need to have that which is in you to help you to navigate that. Here's the next point on your notes. You don't have to feel love to give love to God. In fact, when you give love, when you don't feel love, that's the greatest kind of love. Because, to be quite honest with you, when you're getting the living daylight to be out of you, you don't really feel all cozy with your family members and friends and even with God. And, and yet, these people are experiencing terrible tragedy in their lives and yet they love they love they love God they're making the decision to love God why why would they do that next point in your notes you love him because you believe in him because you've come to terms with the fact that this is the son of God he came to this world he died on the cross for me and now I have a relationship with him and so whatever happens happens notice what this quote by C.S. Lewis faith is the art of holding on to things your reason has once accepted in spite of your changing moods how many would say from time to time you have changing moods? Show of hands. Yes, we all do. And, and from time to time you just don't feel like God's anywhere to be found. Where are you, God? Have you abandoned me? Now listen to me. Everybody look up here. He has not abandoned you. He will never abandon you. Regardless of your changing moods, if you've reasoned to a point of probability and you begin to understand who this is that gave his life for you, why would he abandon you now? He's not. He loves you. He is with you. You can take that to the bank. And the more you understand that, that it's just not a concept, but it's a reality. And you pray to God and you say, God, make that real to me. It'll make all the difference in the world in how you respond to fiery trials. I need to go back to the story. So when King Nebuchadnezzar received the defiant response, he had the three tied up, thrown into the furnace. He was so angry that he turned it up seven times hotter. It was so hot it killed the soldiers who cast them in. But when the king looked into the fire, what he saw shook him to the core. What did he see? Anybody? He saw four. He saw four, and not only that, they weren't bound up. They were walking around. There was four of them unbound. Who was the fourth one? It was Jesus. It was a Christophany. That's a story, a visual image, so to speak, to remind us he is always with us through our fiery trials and storms. And we can take that to the bank because here's the last point in your notes. Because Jesus went through your greatest fiery furnace for you, the cross. That, that was the worst we were going to be eternally separated from the Father. And he took that for you. If he didn't abandon, abandon you during 
that most difficult time. He's certainly not going to abandon you through the lesser fiery furnaces that we go to because Jesus went through your greatest fiery furnace for you, the cross. He'll certainly be in your smaller furnaces with you. Let's pray. Would you bow your heads with me? Let's pray. God, thank you so much. Father God, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for sending your son, our Savior. He did that for us. He took on the greatest fiery furnace. And because he did that, that guarantees that he will be with us during our lesser fiery furnaces. Certainly any fiery furnace compared to that one is much less. He who, did not, he who knew no sin became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God, that we stand in right relationship with you, not because of what we do, but because of what he's done. And so Jesus did that for me, for you, and because he did that for me and you, we can certainly go through these smaller furnaces for him to put him on display. And if we trust him, God, thank you for the promise that when we put our trust in you, when we believe in you, in the smaller furnaces, that they will make us better, not bitter. It will increase our intimacy and maturity with you so that we can better put you on display. Jesus, help us to understand that you didn't suffer so that we wouldn't suffer, but that when we suffer, we would suffer like you. We would suffer well. We would put you on display for your glory. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand with me? Let me conclude by reading to you a blessing from Isaiah 43, verses 1 through 3. I would encourage you to study this, especially if you're going through a real tough time right now. These are God's words to us. He says this. Everybody, listen up. Look up here. Here we go. Fear not. Fear not. For I've redeemed you. This is words from our Father in heaven to you this morning. I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. And when you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned. And the flames shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, your Savior, in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. God bless you guys.